All right. It's Rock and Roll Death Brigade podcast with me, Randy Rocket Cody of TheMetalDen.com. It is July 4th, 2022, Monday. Hope everyone's doing good and having a good, safe uh, 4th of July celebration out there. Got a lot of ground to cover before we get rocking with some music. Got a lot of different stories at TheMetalDen.com to talk about. And, of course, uh, at RandyRocketCody.com. So we'll get uh, get going on the latest stories you'll find at uh, TMD. Of course, we've got uh, Demon Hunter has debuted a new single, Silence the, the World. You can check that out. Christian metalcore band. You've got uh, Crank Height. Did I pronounce that right? It's signed with Wormhole Death. They're an Austrian dark metal uh, band. They just signed a licensing deal with Wormhole Death uh, for their uh, album Gargantua, which will be released on September 30th of this year. Uh, also, we've got uh, a story from Motley Crue. Nikki Six uh, has done an interview uh, talking about the band infighting. Uh, this is something that's been a big story most recently in the past 18 days with uh, Motley Crue and uh, specifically their drummer Tommy Lee and the singer Vince Neil, a purported fight that uh, broke out before they actually started the stadium tour. And this is what led to the to the uh, broken ribs that, that Tommy Lee uh says that he he has uh, endured and that he that it actually happened. Now, his wife has come out and said that it was a fall down some stairs, but nobody believes that. You know, this this is there's other stories out there, but this is the story people are focusing on. Uh, as Nikki Six has talked about, you know, they're the Motley Crue has always considered themselves like a gang. So his quote is, we're, we're like a gang. We will attack each other. And that's definitely something that's happened with Motley Crue in the past between uh, Tommy Lee and, uh, and Vince Neil. So that's uh, really interesting as, as far as the story that we know about this, uh, this purported fight that took place. And uh, real interesting stuff, as well as the uh, other story that's taken uh, place at the stadium tour with Brett Michaels, the singer of Poison, who had to be hospitalized. Now, the tip that came in on that was... Uh, there was different uh, stories going on out there, mixed reports that he had gotten some kind of had a reaction to some COVID related medication uh, or that he had, had fallen or, or something, uh, on, you know, because of the weather conditions or something like that. But the, this report has uh, come in from the catering lady that was at the at the show. And says that before the gig, you know, they allow backstage, they've got these, uh, you know, they've got tables set up where they put the food. And it's like a, uh, a catering type situation for the bands. You know, they'll come in and they'll do this work. Now, I've, I've actually had one of my family members has done this work. So every every rock concert, there's, you know, there there is a table of food that's set up for the artists. And it, it's typically like a buffet style where, you, you know, you've got all these different types of, of food and whatnot. But usually there's someone that's serving you. Uh, they will there be a couple people at least to, to help the artists. You know they're coming through and want to get their food and put some food on their plate. Uh, apparently uh, Vince Neil was was uh, 
he was cut off in line by Brett Michaels. And this is what started a fight between those two. He actually uh, had some words for him, basically said that he needed, that Brett Michaels needed to go back to the, to the rear of the line where he belonged. And uh, Vince Neal is purportedly has thrown, uh, at this point, throws a punch in the stomach of Brett Michaels. And this is what led to the whole situation with uh, poison canceling that, that uh, show. And uh, whether or not he was truly hospitalized or not, or if he was just playing butthurt, we don't really know, you know, the full gist of it. Uh, there has been some kind of back and forth between Motley Crue and uh, Brett Michaels in the past. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. He did return and, and played uh, a, a shortened set. So he's, he's back out of the hospital. But really interesting stuff because, uh, again, it gets to this whole thing with the... the violence that you know that vince neal is just a fly off the handle kind of a guy anybody knows and has looked at his track record he's had incidents where he's hit valet parking attendants with pizza boxes to get his keys back he's attacked women uh who are trying to get an autograph uh he's you know he's he's just had many many incidents he's had uh, abuse domestic abuse uh cases against him as far as i understand it so you know um He's Vince Neal is the kind of guy that's a loose cannon, and with the way that things have been going for him in, in the past couple of years, you know, you can see he's not he's he's not happy guy. He's not he doesn't look happy up on that stage. It looks like he, it's a all forced. Uh, you know, now now with you've had Tommy Lee's injury, now you've got this Brett Michael situation. Something's going on here. Something's not something's not right. This is not this is not how this this. Uh, comeback tour was supposed to be so there's a lot of, of problems going on we don't know how much worse it's going to get we've got the COVID-19 this is a continuing issue uh with the Omicron we've you know people are still sick as hell uh, and people are, are still dealing with uh trying to uh you know exist in this world and do things with the situation at hand which is that this Omicron uh, sub uh BA four and five are really causing havoc, as well as um, the BA two, as I understand it. So this is, you know, people. I, I've got uh, my wife has told me she's had a couple more childhood friends that have passed away from the Omicron. Uh, she has a friend who just was uh, diagnosed at home with a home test kit as being positive with COVID, and my wife was actually hanging out with this person at a show the other night. So she's under a current uh, five-day quarantine because of it. So this is real stuff. This is still a problem. Um, you know, the government, the, the federal government in America, the, the states, the cities, there are the ones who are making these decisions to, you know, remove the mandates for all the mask wearing and all that stuff. And that goes for travel on the planes and Amtrak and, and all that stuff. So, but yet we're, these cases are escalating. Here in Tarrant County, they've already uh, they've raised the warning level to, to uh, yellow. So it's not red yet, but it's starting to it's starting to get serious again. So you're going to start to see more and more reports. I think on stuff that I've already been talking about for months, going back to last year when I said that this was going to be continue to be a big problem, and if we didn't take it seriously, uh, we could have another another major problem on our hands. Uh, 
Um, so we've had a lot of deaths continue to go on. A lot of people are getting re reinfected with this Omicron. So we need to get serious about it and the citizens of, of, of the world make the best decision for ourselves. And if it's going to take a little bit more time to uh, put on masks and, and, until we can, uh, you know, get, get this all figured out, you know, that's what we have to do. This is the debt that is shown that the best way for you to not get uh, contaminated is to wear a mask. Now, there's different types of masks. There's masks that are more loose-fitting and that uh, spray from spit or whatever, or a sneeze or whatever, that can get still get on, in, onto your face and into your mouth. You have to wear something that's not loose-fitting, that's that's not too tight, but something that, that fits in, in your face well enough that it's going to keep those types of things from getting in uh, into your mouth and in your nose and inhaling things. So these are things that people need to still keep in mind. It's very contagious and it, and, it, and it reinfects people who have even had all this, uh, you know, the boosters and the, uh, the vaccines. So just keep that in mind and we'll see how things go as uh, the stadium tour moves forward. We, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, it, there could still be cancellations. This tour could still at some point be called off because of, of this uh, growing concern for this uh, surge going on with the Omicron. Okay. So, all right, well, I'll be uh, appearing back on the radio uh, coming up on uh, this Wednesday, okay, which is the 6th of July, and I'll be appearing on WQEE 99.1 FM Rock Radio Station with uh, host Ryan O'Neill. We'll be talking about my investigation for the Zodiac Killer, and, I've, you know, I've been working on that case now for a few years now. I've named Michael Aquino as the prime suspect. It's the first time he's been named. And so we're going to continue to, uh, you know, investigate what I, what I've, uh, come up with in the latest reporting. It'll be part one that we'll post on that day. Uh, it's going to be just going to blow your minds, the stuff that I've uncovered. So definitely check that out. You'll uh, be able to check that out at randyrocketcody.com. And remember there's uh, paid subscriptions that you need to, uh, do at both sites for Randy Rocket Cody. Uh, dot com and the metal den dot com nine ninety nine a month that's all unlimited at, for each site and uh, you know those people who don't have the uh, subscription when these new articles post you're not going to be able to read them you're going to be locked out now I will do something with them uh, including the Chester Bennington report I'll be doing coming up on his uh, on uh, the twentieth of July is his fifth anniversary we'll be doing a vigil. Uh, at TheMetalDen.com for Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. And I will uh, have that part one of that report uh, dropping on that day. And that, let me tell you, this is some crazy stuff. If you've been following the Truth for Chris and Truth for Chester reporting that I've been doing for the past five years, and you have any idea about what's going on with Pizzagate and all this scandal with the elite uh, pedophiles, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, that whole, you know, she just got a sentence. I believe she got 20 years. Uh, but how that relates to the black book that Chris Cornell purportedly got his hands on, how that involved and connected to Chester Bennington and how I believe they were both murdered because of what they were uncovering. And uh, so that's stuff that we're going to get more into uh, when, when those reports uh, drop starting July 20th throughout the rest of the month. OK, so. All right. Well, listen, uh, Again, I can't thank everybody enough for all your support of my sites and uh, all the awesome messages I get from everybody online and telling me that you enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, 
you know, spreading the word, sharing the, the uh, on Twitter, the post on Facebook. I, I just really appreciate it. I know a lot of people are doing it. I see it and we're getting a lot of views, a lot of people checking them out. Like I said, you know, when these websites out there republish these stories, uh, you see get, they're getting massive, massive response. Uh, so thank you very much for helping spread the word. And uh, one last thing uh, before we get rocking with some music, make sure uh, uh, tonight, you know, it's 4th of July that you get out and you have some uh, fun, whether you get, you get out and watch some fireworks wherever you can at a park or, or somewhere with a friend, someone that's, uh, you know, maybe looking for someone to hang out with or family, you know, hang out with your family and, and hopefully have had, had some time to do that. Uh, you know, this is just a once a year thing and here in America, uh, you know, celebrating just that America, you know, this is a, an awesome time to do that and to not have these arguments about what side you're on and whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, just, you know, let that go for, for today and just enjoy some, uh, some time with your loved ones, your family and friends. And, you know, cause life is short, you know, with all the craziness going on in this world, you never know, you know, what's going to happen. So just, just take the time to, uh, to celebrate the fact that you, you know you you are in in a, in a country that has a lot more freedoms than <laughs> than the other countries out there, and you know despite the fact that we do have uh, incredible inflation going on right now, there's still a whole lot of things that are great about America. There's still a lot of whole whole lot of great people in America, and um, you know despite the fact that there's a whole lot of corruption going on in America, uh, you know there's there's a lot to uh, rejoice in in the fact that hey. If you're just healthy right now, in this in these times, that's that's something to really be uh, thankful for. Okay, all right, horns up. <laughs> yeah, let's get rocking with some music. My last trip to New Orleans, I uh, flew out with Tommy and um, it was fantastic. There's been a lot said about the fact that there's been a lot of infighting in Motley Crue. We're like a gang. We will attack each other like a pack of wolves, but if somebody from the outside attacks one of us, we all turn and, and attack them. I've seen it a million times. I've seen it on stage, I've seen it in bars, and I've seen it even in interviews where we could say something maybe about each other, but if somebody else said something, I'd watch them go after the press. Me and Tommy had not been talking for a long time, and we just saw things differently. And when we went to New Orleans, we really had a chance to reconnect and remember why we were best friends in the first place. And as Tommy said, we've known each other longer than just about anybody on the planet. Like, all of our parents have basically passed away. The band and our friendships outlived any marriages or girlfriends. It's like we've known each other so long, it's almost 40 years we've been playing music together. And we really reconnected. I remember coming back from New Orleans and we were just like, we were talking and I was like, we need to make some new music. And that was the beginning of us all getting back in the studio and cutting those four new songs.
There has always been a certain level of drama surrounding Motley Crue, however, this may just take the cake. Now, as many of you may know by now, Motley Crue's legendary drummer Tommy Lee broke four of his ribs just before the beginning of Motley Crue's absolutely epic, the stadium tour, with some ticket packages costing upwards of $4,299. This tour was meant to be a massive, massive comeback for Motley Crue following their previous breakup as as well as multiple years of delays due to world events. On the first show of the tour, Lee would play a couple of songs at the beginning of the band's performance. However, he would later let the audience know that he had broken his ribs and that Tommy Clefettos would be filling in for the rest of the performance. Lee, however, did not disclose exactly how he broke his ribs, and the alleged reason may shock you. Website TheMetalDen.com would report that they received a tip as to how exactly Tommy broke his ribs. A source close to the band would report that a fight broke out during the band's final day of rehearsal between Tommy Lee and Vince Neil. A fight that would ultimately, allegedly, cause the injury to Lee. The anonymous source would report, quote, Tommy was making jokes about Vince's weight problem, and he just kept calling the singer derogatory names like Fat Boy and Vince Neil during band practice, escalating to a big confrontation between the two. Prior to the beginning of the tour, Vince Neil was under a immense scrutiny regarding his poor physical condition, which ultimately meant that his singing was not up to par where it should be for shows of this caliber. However, it was later reported that Vince Neil would be getting into the best shape of his life with a revolutionary fat burning and muscle building device. Now, it's understandable that a vocalist's voice ages, it changes with time, and ultimately the performance of that voice declines. However, like I mentioned before, when you're paying over $4,000 for a Wildside Ultimate package for the tour, fans would want to see Vince Neil in tip-top shape. Apparently, Tommy Lee did not think that Vince had put in the time and effort necessary to go on this tour. He voiced his grievances and ultimately paid the price. If these rumors are in fact true, Tommy should have definitely taken a more constructive route to voice his thoughts, shall we say, to vocalist Vince Neil. Violence, of course, is never the answer, and Tommy Lee is no doubt heartbroken to have to sit out most of these shows that everyone, including the band, has been highly anticipating for years now. What about you? What are your thoughts? Given what we all know about Motley Crue, do you think that these rumors could be true? Or is it all just hearsay? Make sure you sound off in the comment section below. For more rock and metal news, make sure that you subscribe to Heavy and turn on notifications so you don't miss a thing. Thank you so much to our shout out crew over on Patreon. And our shout out crew VIPs, Roger Zuniga. If you want to join the shout out crew over on Patreon, the link will be in the description below. Summer stench 
Neat the black, the sky looks dead. Call my name through the cream, and I'll hear you scream again. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain, black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? Stuttering, cold and damp, still the warm winds I a friend. Times are gone for honest men, and sometimes far too long for snakes. In my shoes, walking sleep. In my youth, I pray to keep heaven sent hell away. No one sings like you anymore. Black hole sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come, black hole sun? Won't you come and wash away the rain, black hole sun? Won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? Black hole sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Black hole sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? Black hole sun. Won't you come? 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 Won't you come?
and uh, we get one just a couple of years. So how do you end up working with Motley Crue? Well, it was kind of a two-part thing, which was I was working at Licorice Pizza, and Nikki came in the store with his then-girlfriend, Evelyn Roth, who was a German uh, fashion model. And we just got really talking about music and bands like you know we both really like sweet and david bowie and i don't know it was kind of a lively conversation and felt like kindred spirit and he like invited me up to the apartment that he shared with vince and tommy on clark street and i went and hung out there and then he invited me to meet alan kaufman which was their uh, first manager and i went to the whiskey and saw the show and met Alan and you know I was just like gung-ho to like jump in and work with them so I did um a lot of displays for them mostly in licorice pizza stores and um the display window that me and Maury Howe did at licorice pizza on sunset was what Tom Zutat saw and went in and saw Motley Crue at the whiskey and then he signed them to Electra. but um my time with Motley was cut short because when they signed with Electra, that was when Doc McGee and Doug Thaler stepped in as managers. And uh, it was just after their, either after or before their uh, Santa Monica Civic date where they had Elvira and all that. But it was interesting because they had, uh, they had mannequins on stage with them and cut them up with chainsaws at that show and in the display that we did we had mannequins holding like different effects of uh the band and stuff so hmm wonder where they got that idea but (laughs) yeah i was watching something last night where you were like the buyer for the store right and you got in trouble for buying a bunch of records and uh The district manager said, these are better all sell or they're coming out of your paycheck. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, I'll be working for Licorice Pizza forever for free. (laughs) But, yeah, they did go. So, well, not all, but enough so that she didn't, like, feel the need to discipline me. Do you still have one of those initial pressings? God, I wish I did. It's like I helped shop the band to the labels and, you know, Alan Coughing gave me like 50 of them right but no i do not have it so and so are you kind of working with alan kaufman as his assistant well alan was a real estate guy so he didn't really know much about the music industry so i really helped with marketing the green world too fast for love album and uh i shopped them to a few a and r people i mean i know i shopped it to john kaladner and he didn't like Vince's voice. He thought he was too nasally. I mean, there were a few others as well. I mean, I did whatever I could to help them. It wasn't like I had all these contacts either. And there was a bad falling out with Alan and the band, right? Um, I don't know exactly what happened there, but it was like he was there and then he was gone. And at the time... He owed me $3,000, which I still never got. So if we put interest on that, <laughs> probably be a pretty good sum at this point. Didn't he invest a lot of his own money into Motley Crue? Well, rumor had it that he like had taken the uh, advance check from 
Electra. I don't know if that's true or not true, but... Did you ever hear from him or probably didn't actually hear from him directly, but did you ever hear anything about him? Not really. I tried to track him down because he owed me money and it was just like, it was just like, poof, he was gone. And so what do you remember about that Motley Crue apartment? What was the address there? You know, it's like the building I lived in with Guns N' Roses was like only like two buildings away from the Motley Crue building. And I ended up living in that building too. Um, it had a swimming pool, the apartment that Motley Crue lived in. It's like one of those things where there's like underground parking and then there was like apartments below and uh, they got in the habit of throwing garbage off their balcony into the, <laughs> the apartment's patio below. And I think that's how they got evicted was... Uh, from that, um, throwing the garbage down there. But <laughs> when they got evicted on the door, there was a movie poster that said the beast within and the door was like hanging on its hinges. And, uh, I wish I had taken a photograph of that. Little did I know, you know, All but... right. <laughs> what did it look like on the inside? Basically a teenage boy crash pad. I mean, all the apartments then had those horrible Berber carpets in there. And, uh, you know, it was nothing special. But I think by the time they moved out, there was something definitely de demonic living in there. <laughs> <laughs> Where did they move after that? Did they still live together? No. I think Nikki moved in with Lita Ford in Coldwater Canyon. That's what I remember. And not really sure where Tommy and Vince went, but um, Mick always lived in like Redondo Beach. I mean, he was never really a part of it. He's like a decade older than those guys at that point, I yeah, think. He didn't right? want to deal with that shit. I mean, come on. Right. How would you describe Nikki at that time? You know, he was pretty functional for as much stuff as he was doing. I thought he was a genius, you know? He got beat up a lot and, uh, had a couple gnarly black eyes, but he was driven. Let's just say that. You knew he was going to pull it off. What were the things that made you think he was a, a genius? Well, he was always talking about future things like stage backdrops and clothes. And it's interesting because I manage a band now called Lovely World. And I flew to meet with Ray Brown with the singer last weekend, and Ray made the theater of pain clothes for Motley Crue, and we were talking about that iconic black and white suit that Nikki wore and the pink thing that Vince wore at that time and stuff. It was just kind of interesting how girly it really got. When I think of Nikki, though, I do think of him in that black and white suit. I mean, it was quite iconic. Oh, yeah. I mean, very Steven Tyler-ish, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and so any favorite Nikki stories from that time? I remember having a conversation with him on the phone when I was working at Licorice Pizza and they had just gone to Canada and they got like their uh, handcuffs and whips and chains and I think some porno mags or something taken at the border of Canada. And I was like, yikes. I go, you better like watch out what you're doing. You know, you're going to catch a disease. And he said, I'm not going to catch a disease. I'm going to spread a disease. <laughs> I was like, good luck with that. Any experience with Mick? Any kind of uh, stories with him? Not really. Like I said, he didn't really hang out. Right. What about uh, Vince? What was he like at that time? He was pretty wild and crazy. 
I remember he licked my face when he came in to enter the Dragon once, which was one of my favorite clubs back then. And uh, he always had a posse of girls and he was into the mud wrestling and that sort of stuff. And then what about Tommy? How, How would you describe him back then? He was like wild and crazy. I quite liked Tommy. He was the youngest and he had sort of a flamboyant, let's have a good time attitude about everything. Any favorite stories there? Um, I do have one memory of him like leaving the rainbow <laughs> and there was like a limo out front and he and Nikki were walking out and somehow he had like smuggled out a beer and he like, you know, threw the beer bottle on the ground and it like broke into a bunch of pieces and everybody was washing and gasping and I was like fuck that's rock and roll you know they were the quintessential uh, rock and rollers that rise to success is pretty quick right with them once they get rolling oh yeah I mean it seemed like after that Santa Monica Civic gig they were just gone because they were on the road constantly and now did you ever once they get signed and move on did you ever keep in contact or see them again? Yeah, I did. I like, I saw them in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I went home and, uh, you know, they played and then I like took them to some strip clubs in my hometown. (laughs) What year was that? Oh God, I'm going to say, I'm not exactly sure, but I would say that it was like 82 or 83. So shout at the devil. Mm -hmm. Okay. Definitely shout at the devil. I do want to say also, I went to the forum to see them during theater pain, and I saw all the things that Nikki had talked about, the backdrops. They were talking about having the drum kit come off the stage, all that stuff. I saw it all come true, and I cried. I was, like, so happy. This is a song called, I Am a Predator. Warning, I chain smoke and I say fuck a lot, but I accept myself for the way I am. I accept you too. Viewer discretion advised. Intense hunting and touring schedule left little time for his domestic life. At home, a distance was growing between Ted and his wife Sandra. Maybe I was uh, on the road too much. Maybe she felt that I wasn't around enough when she was pregnant and had the kids. So for whatever reason, she gave up on the marriage. Adding to their problems, Ted says Sandra was struggling with an addiction to drugs and alcohol. While he was fighting a losing battle with his own addiction, his weakness for young women. First off, I want to thank whoever sent me this article. I like to give credit where credit's due. And I searched and searched. I don't know if it was a fucking email, messenger or what, but I can't find it. So I apologize for that. I get an overwhelming amount of support and, you know, ideas for videos and I do appreciate it all. Sometimes I get a little lost, but I really couldn't do it without all the help, so thank you. Ted Nugent's jailbait problem. From the Huffington Post, in the case of Nugent, we have even come to see alleged child sex abuse as some sort of harmless vice. Can you imagine anyone else who has been accused of having sex with a 12-year-old, written a song about raping a 13-year-old, and adopted a 17-year-old so he could have sex with her, going on to campaign alongside all the most conservative family values candidates. What would be a description of your music? Well, I think the titles pretty much say it all. I, I give a lot of uh, time and concentration in my lyrics, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel it's really a, I feel it's a uh, important display of my art form. Uh-huh. Songs like uh, 
wang dang sweet. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a compassionate kind of guy. When Ted Nugent was 32 years old, he released a song, Jailbait. Here's a taste of the lyrics written by him. I was monogamous around the clock. Kinda. Young girls were infatuated with Ted, and when his willpower was put to the test, he failed miserably. Oh, they were just everywhere you had to get a crowbar, just pummel them. Knock them off the doorknob. They were hanging on your lingai. Um, yes, it, I, it could have been whiskey, it could have been drugs, but no, I was a wang-dang addict. I mean, I was addicted to girls. Addicted. It was hopeless. It was beautiful. Two years before recording Jailbait, Nugent had the novel idea of becoming legal guardian to a 17-year-old girl so they could have sex without, you know, her parents having legal recourse. Soon after his divorce, Ted found a new love, a young girl from Hawaii named Pele Masa. She was like a dream, a fantasy, exotic dream of mine to meet her. Ted was 30 years old, Pele just 17. I was underage, and even back in the wild 70s, it just really wasn't a terribly appropriate situation in most people's eyes. And now it would be criminal. Ted admits to a number of liaisons with underaged girls, and while it may have raised eyebrows, it never raised the interest of local authorities. Ted charmed the girl's parents right along with his teenage lovers. And in the case of Pele, her mother signed papers making Ted her legal guardian. I got the stamp of approval of their, their parents. Because they figured better Ted Nugent than some drug-infested punk in high school. Critics saw Ted's Tarzan routine as a cartoon. To them, Ted the Caveman was beginning to look like a cultural Neanderthal. I guess I just got to realize I just never get to eat all that out there. Instead of listening to his guitar, they heard his mouth. And they didn't like a lot of the times his kind of arrogant, macho attitudes. If, if he's talking so loud about all this stuff, how could they hear his guitar? How could they hear his music? I'm a mouth. You know, I, I just say what comes spewing forth. If you don't have a sense of humor, you'll hurt yourself getting angry at me. And then on Howard Stern, Courtney Love alleges that she gave the nuge a blowjob when she was 12. The first time you, one of the first times you gave sex was with Ted Nugent. You went backstage, you claim. And he hates me. And you can't remember it. And you gave uh, him oral sex. Yeah, I was in my peer group, and they were groupies, and... Um, and you did it. You, do, you, you did that for Ted Nugent. How old were you? 16 or something. 12? 
I don't want to talk about it. I don't, be honest. I don't how old were you? I don't want kids to know how old I was. But I think that's important so that we understand. No, I don't think that anybody needs to know the age back then in the, like, how old were 50s. You? No, how old were you when you gave Ted Nugent the sex? Really young. I, I, and 12? I, I didn't have breasts yet. You're kidding. No. Oh, that's sick. It's sick. How old were you? The 11? one he said before. No, the one he said. 12. 12. And a half. You were 12 and a half? Yeah, but I mean, like, that I had a disgusting lot, you know, I was a juvenile, I was in juvenile hall. If you examine how I conduct myself, I don't think a day goes by in my life for many, many years now that we don't do charity work for children. I offer you this. Have you done a lot of interviews? Decent number. Call me when you sit down across from someone who has more families with dying little boys and girls who get a call to take them on their last fishing trip in life. Call me when you meet someone who does that more than I do. Because that's really moderate. In fact, you know what that is? That's extreme. I'm an extremely loving, passionate man, and people who investigate me honestly, without the baggage of political correctness, ascertain the conclusion that I'm a damn nice guy. Wait a minute. Dude, I've investigated you for like 10 minutes with no political correctness, and all I see is that you like young girls. And if you can find a screening process more powerful than that, I'll s Or How's that sound? We have no idea where that unexpected outburst came from. The second part of it directed to a female CBS News producer. Fucking stoned. I got 